0: We are uh, towards the end of a conversation we've been calling Trust Issues. So if you don't have any trust issues, you don't have to listen to me. That's fine. You can just tune out. But if you think you might have a trust issue or two, which from knowing most of you, we all do have at least one, if not a few, trust issues, um, we've been having this conversation because we think it's important that we examine where that lack of trust might come from in our lives. And so we've actually been going through a number of different topics where we may or may not have issues of trust within those topics. So we've talked about our trust with God, with the Bible, with the church, with our neighbors. And last week, Mike did part one of what is gonna be part two today having to do with trust issues when it comes to leadership, when it comes to the, the people that we might may or may not see as leaders within our neighborhoods, workplaces, our country, our churches, various institutions uh, in many different ways in which we might see leaders. So we're gonna continue in part two of this conversation today. And so my question I had for you was, what is your definition of leadership? So we're not gonna have everybody scream out their definition of leadership, but I have asked this question to groups many times, and what is always the case is that no matter what room that I'm in, every single person in there has a different definition of leadership, everybody. This is actually a huge question that is never, there's never consensus on what the definition of leadership is. I am a student of leadership theory, I've studied leadership theory since uh, college and seminary and no matter what there is this huge debate on the definition of leadership and there's not really any consensus on it. So some people say things like this, leadership is the ability to see a problem and to be the solution. All right, so there's one. Leadership is the ability to unapologetically express and see out, seek out your vision. There's a definition for you. Leadership is the ability to help people achieve things that they don't think are possible. That's kind of a nice, hopeful one. Uh, leadership is having a vision, sharing that vision, inspiring other, others to support your vision. A lot of vision in that definition. How about this one? The definition of leadership is somebody that has people following them pretty simple, pretty straightforward. It turns out in our country, there is this subconscious definition of leadership. Maybe some of you have heard of this before, that there is this subconscious definition where a leader is somebody who you look up to because they're actually taller and their voices are lower and they're physically fit. This has actually been studied. Maybe some of you have read this. It, It got kind of widespread in Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink. Uh, Talking about how only 4% of Americans are taller than 6'2", but 30% of the CEOs of Fortune 500 CEOs are at least 6'2 or taller. And uh, they make more money. 2% more earnings for every inch. Have you guys heard this before? This is an actual thing. And also, researchers have found out that the the deeper their voices, or the lower frequency, the more that they earn and the more that their company earns. So when you're thinking about your stock options, you gotta look for the frequencies of the voices of the executives. And then, marathon-running CEOs head companies that are valued to 10% higher than CEOs of companies that don't run marathons. I don't know, I mean, people here, you have a business degree, tell me, how is this the thing, this is the case? So basically, the clear takeaway here, and maybe unfortunate takeaway is, we are biased towards a definition of a leader, which is somebody who is tall, fit, and deep-voiced. And if this is true, things are not going well for me. (laughs) I am, I am seriously, I am barely 5'3". And every year I go to the doctor and they're like, almost 5'3". And I'm like, I'm not going to get there. It's not going to happen. Like it's only going down from here. So I don't, I mean, what can you do? I can't, apparently I can't run a fortune 500 company and there goes all my plans for my life. So that's too bad. Um, But it's crazy, right? This is actually consistent over years in our country. They've looked back at presidents, and even for women, the taller women make more money. It's bizarre. This is the kind of weird world that we're in, and we're talking about trust issues when it comes to leadership, and last week we talked a lot about whether or not we can trust leaders, but I want to know, can we trust ourselves to even figure out what it means to, to find a good leader? Because apparently one of the defining factors has to do with marathons or something. So today, I actually want to make a specific definition of leadership. And it's totally cool if you have a different one, because my theory is you all do have a different one. But I'm going to kind of put mine out there. After years of studying leadership and training leaders, this is the definition I've come to hold. And maybe it'll change, but this is where I'm at so far. My definition of a leader is someone who is intentional with their influence. Somebody who is intentional with your influence. And I would say we are all people of influence. We all have influence in different spheres in our lives. Sometimes people would push back and say they don't feel that they have that. But I would say that everybody has influence, but the question that makes somebody a leader or not is whether or not they are seeking to be intentional with their influence. So if you don't feel that you are someone who is influential, I want to say I disagree. I'd love to talk with you about the ways I think that you are a person of influence, whether you are being intentional with it or not. And I want to uh, kind of put it out there today that I think God sees you that way. That God created you as a person of influence. And as we talk about the trust issues we have with leaders in our lives, I think there's also this question about the trust issues we might have with ourselves as people of influence, as people who might be leaders. So uh, let me give you just a little bit of... The part one, I'd really encourage you to listen back. If you haven't figured this out, we have this great website called millcitychurch.com, and you can listen to all the sermons there. And if you didn't hear part one from Michael last week, I'd really encourage you to listen to it. But let me give you the brief summary of the main points. Uh, Michael read this passage where Jesus is expressing to his disciples, actually not too much before, it's really close to the time that he's going to go to his death on the cross, and he's speaking to his disciples and he says to them that leadership should be about coming alongside what Jesus is doing and being willing to serve. He, he talks about being willing to be the person to make sure that their influence isn't about controlling other people or manipulating other people or being like a benefactor, he says, who lord things over people to get what they want from the followers. Jesus says this clear phrase, he says, you are not to be like that, which is so, I just love that. You are not to be like that. Listen, Jesus modeled a sense of leadership that was about support as well as challenge. Jesus' leadership was about love as well as truth, leading by example, being willing to be a servant and also being willing to let other people serve you when that's the humble thing to do. And Mike pointed out last week that even in the time of the kings in the Old Testament, thousands of years before Jesus, all the, the people of God said they want a king, we want a leader, we want to be like the other nations. And what was so interesting is that God kept saying, I'm your leader, you don't need a human leader in that same way as everybody else. But people kept the people of God kept saying, we want a king, we want a leader, we want a leader, and finally God gave them a king and a long line of kings, actually, if you read through First Kings, Second Kings, and pretty much every single one of those leaders failed the people they were leading. It was a long line of mostly not great leaders, some that were okay, but every single one of them failed them, and thousands of years before Jesus and now thousands of years later, we still have now a line of leaders of anything that is being led, of people who at some point in their leadership will let their followers down without fail, every single time. And so uh, what Mike was expressing last week is that if God is really our true leader, then that brings up these questions for us about what it looks like for us to see Jesus as out ahead of us and us actually following Jesus in our life, looking for what God is doing around us and being people who are seeing God as our primary leader. And Mike suggested this last week, and I think this is a difficult thing for us to swallow. Are there times that we are functionally living our lives as though Jesus wasn't actually leading anything? On our everyday life, are we functioning as though Jesus wasn't actually leading anything? It's just a thought or an idea that that might be true. So today, as we talk about our trust issues with leadership, here's a couple questions I want us to wrestle with as we go through. First, if Jesus really is our leader, the best leader, are we living as though Jesus were king of our lives? Are we living as though Jesus was the primary leader that is actually leading around us? And then secondly, do we trust ourselves to be people of influence or my definition, leader? Do we trust ourselves to be people of influence that follow our king? These are the two questions. So I want to look today at 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. So if you have a Bible, you can pull that out. And we'll have it up here on the screen, 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. Peter is one of the early leaders of the church. Uh, he was a disciple of Jesus. He lived that, those years of ministry with Jesus. And he's one of the first people to be leading the church as it begins to grow. And you see that in the book of Acts. And at one point, he writes this letter to a, a bunch of churches, quite a few actually, that were in a part of the, the world called Asia Minor at the time. And most, of, if not all, of these churches of people that were beginning to gather uh, were people suffering from religious persecution of some sort. So people were being stoned, people were being put in jail, people were being killed. And some scholars point out that another interesting way that this persecution was happening is what they call social persecution. Uh, It was a very shame and honor based culture in Asia Minor. And so if you could shame people and keep them take their name through the mud, then basically they would be social outcasts from their primary culture. And so uh, many scholars would say that this is what was happening here. People were becoming socially persecuted and kind of becoming outcasts from society. And so Peter writes this letter to this group of churches, and I want you to notice the imagery here. Once again, 1 Peter 2. This is what he writes. As you come to him, Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, To be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. but now you have received mercy. What's so interesting here is that Peter is using pretty strong imagery, right, of a building, a building that has a precious cornerstone, a living stone. Uh, speaking of, of Jesus as this cornerstone, we sang that earlier in the song Christ Alone, that, that, that Jesus is this cornerstone. And what's so significant, many of you know about a cornerstone, is that it aligns the entire building Right, It sets the alignment of the building as the foundation grows and as the buildings are built. If the cornerstone is not accurate, then the whole building will be a mess. And so Jesus is the cornerstone. And it's important because the entire foundation of this this building is being built off of his life and who Jesus is and Jesus' leadership. And so then there's this key phrase that Peter says, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ so this image then extends to us you are like stones like Jesus the living stone the cornerstone you too are like living stones Uh, that's a weird thing to think about stones that are alive but we're just going to move through that and so the stones are being built into this spiritual house is the way it's described and it's interesting that uh, Peter uses this image of a building and talks about Jesus being the builder and God being a builder of this building, Jesus as the cornerstone, but also the builder, uh, because Jesus was a builder, right? How many of you at some point in your life heard the phrase, Jesus was a carpenter? All right, if you haven't, you just did. So this is something we've heard, and, and it's it's something that most of us heard about since we were little if we grew up in the church. And the fun fact is, that Jesus was probably less of a carpenter the way that we think of one now and more like what we would call now a stonemason. A stonemason, somebody who built things out of stone. If you look at just where Jesus was living at the time and the resources that were available to him, it wasn't wood. It wasn't wood. It was stones. And so, man, now think about this imagery as Peter is saying Uh, Jesus is this cornerstone upon which everything is built and he is the builder because he physically was a stone builder, a stonemason. Is it messing with you that Jesus is a carpenter thing? is like kind of being blown out. I know it's weird, but also we're going to move through that too. But that's true. And so these people are hearing this and they knew that that was Jesus' vocation. His physical vocation before his ministry started was to be a physical builder and now he is building a spiritual building and these people listening to this get to be a part of that. This is a big deal to them. Then Peter uh, quotes some specific scripture, kind of poetic there. Did you notice that? It's kind of a mixture, actually, of Isaiah and Psalms. It's this prophecy hundreds of years before Jesus was walking the earth, actually using the term cornerstone to describe Jesus and who the Messiah was going to be. And this is just fascinating that it was said hundreds of years later, hundreds of years before, and Peter's pointing this out, hundreds of years later, and uh, you notice in that language there, there is reference made to people who follow that cornerstone and who live by that message won't be put to shame. And you can imagine how important it was for those people to hear that because they were being put to shame culturally every single day. And so here there is this language, if you follow Jesus, you won't be put to shame, big picture, long term, because this is what God is doing. And at the end, there is a way that that is Peter describes us, the church, which I think is considering us now here today, thousands of years later, listen very closely to what he says. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So I want to focus on this phrase, royal priesthood, because there is like a serious depth of meaning in just that one phrase in which Peter is expressing to these suffering churches this phrase. Royal, meaning you are part of the royal family, you are part of God's family, you are heirs to the throne of the kingdom of God. And then priesthood, the priests were those within that culture who had access to God And it was kind of widely understood that access to God was mostly allowed for priests and not for everyday people. And here, they're being expressed that you are a royal priesthood. So back when God's people were asking for a king, thousands of years before Jesus, this was the leadership structure. There were priests and there were kings. And the priests and the kings had pretty much all of the formal authority in the land. And here, Peter is saying something radical. He's saying, you are all a royal priesthood. You are all kings and priests. You don't need to have a specific role. You don't need to have a title. You don't need to be appointed in some sort of, you know, interesting uh, ritualistic way. You are a royal priesthood. And Peter says very clearly, Jesus has chosen you. And Jesus is your cornerstone and your life as a royal priesthood. Uh, royal priesthood can be aligned by this cornerstone. And Peter says that there is a purpose, a very specific purpose for this royal priesthood, and that is that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And I wonder if some of us have lost the connection to the feeling that we may have had at one point of being called out of darkness. I know I forget what that felt like. To be called out of darkness into light And that sometimes has to happen multiple times in our life when we're in seasons of darkness. But that's what Jesus does, calls us out of darkness into his wonderful light. And so Peter here is expressing that God created us to be influential and has given us access, which is huge here, right? Because people were not given access to his influence, to God's influence. And as God influences us and God influences the people who are hearing from Peter, they are able to be people of influence in the world. I mean, this is so clear here, what Peter's saying. God is our father, or maybe for some of you it would be easier just to say God is our parent, a perfect parent. God encompasses all of the wonderful things about the most perfect parent ever. But our, our God, our parent, is not just a, our dad or our mother. God is the boss, the king. We are heirs to the throne of the kingdom of God because our parent is the boss. Our parent has the throne. On our own, we have no authority. We have no power. I mean, not really. You know, you look around and you see people just grabbing for authority and grabbing for power all around us all the time, relentless, wanting to have more power and more control. But we don't actually really have any, not for real. But when it comes to being a royal priesthood, God's special possession, we have authority because we have access to the authority of the kingdom of God. Just like in this image of a king, the firstborn heirs to the throne, they don't have any authority actually by themselves, but in the name of the king, they have all authority when you think about it that way. In the name of Jesus, we have all authority. Let me tell you a story that might help us to kind of wrap our minds around this. Uh, This is a story I heard since I was a little girl um, because my dad would always tell this story. My dad was a pastor. My grandpa was a pastor. But my grandpa was a bivocational pastor, meaning he didn't actually get paid to be a pastor at all. During the week, he was a contractor. He was a builder. And so he was building these large building projects and he was overseeing, my grandpa was overseeing these building projects. And since my dad was a little boy, he said he was like six or seven years old, he might have been exaggerating, he started to help with the work projects. I don't know if the child labor laws were different then, but whatever. So my dad and his five siblings would all be out there helping with the work projects. And so my dad said that when he was about nine years old, he was out at the, the work site and he was standing next to my grandpa and my grandpa was overseeing the work site and he saw from across the way that a bulldozer was about to bulldoze straight into the property next to the property they were they were working on, which would have been a huge fine, and they would have gotten in tons of trouble. And so he said to my dad, my grandpa said to my dad, Bobby, he went by Bobby, Bobby, run out there and stop that bulldozer. He's nine, nine years old. So there's no walkie-talkies or whatever, I guess, right? This is this is in the 50s. So he runs out there, he books it out there, and he stands in front of the bulldozer, a little nine-year-old guy. He, my dad was not much taller than me. And so he's like waving his arms, and the bulldozer guy is just like, get out of the way, kid, what are you doing? Get out of the way. And uh, this goes back and forth with my dad squeaking his little nine-year-old voice out trying to get this guy to stop the bulldozer so he doesn't go into the property and the guy's like kid get out of the way get out of the way I'm just gonna keep going you better get out of my way and finally the bulldozer guy says who do you think you are get out of my way and that's when my dad realized oh oh! my dad's the contractor you need to stop the bulldozer and then the guy powers down the bulldozer and says well why didn't you say that in the first place if I knew your dad was the boss I would have stopped right away kid right because He has authority only because his dad had authority, only because his dad happened to be the boss in this situation. Our spiritual parent, God, is not only the most loving father, is not only the most nurturing parent, God is the boss. And it doesn't always feel like that in our world, does it? Because there's a battle going on right now. But this is God's world and ultimately God is gonna be victorious over it. And so when we see things that are not of God, when we see things, when we see somebody bulldozing into someone's life in a way that's not right, when we see the enemy trying to to steal and kill and destroy as we hear scripture describe it, we have authority to say, stop it. In the name of Jesus, you need to stop. It's not our authority, it's not our powering over or manipulation or being, you know, six-five. It is authority that comes only because our parent is the boss. Do you see yourself in this way? Do you see yourself as having influence and authority because of who your parent is? God sees you in this way. I believe that God sees you in this way. One of the questions that we ask in discipleship often here at Mill City is this question Do you live a life worth imitating? And this is actually a really hard question to be asked, I know from experience. But it's an important question, because people around you are influenced by your life. And some of you might say, well, I don't really want them to be. Well, too bad. That's real. That's just what happens. The people around you are influenced by your life. And I think there's this question that we need to ask. Do you trust yourself as a person of influence? Do you trust yourself as a leader? Talk about trust issues, right? It's interesting to me because sometimes we act like we can't trust anybody but ourselves, don't we? Forget it. I'm not going to trust any leaders in our culture. I'm not going to trust any leaders of institutions because I'm the only one that can watch out for myself. And we say this kind of almost express this idea that the only person we can trust is ourselves. But in an honest moment, I know for me, we realize we don't even trust ourselves. Even ourselves, we have trust issues when it comes to to the way that we want to live out our life as people of influence. And here's the thing, and this might seem weird for me to say. God trusts you. God trusts you. God trusts that you can be a leader, that you can be a person of intentional influence, the way that I am defining that word. Not a perfect person, not a perfect example, but a living example. But Jesus, here it's clear, wants you to trust him first, trust him as a living stone, as a cornerstone by which your whole life is aligned. And if you seek to do this, you can, I can be a person of intentional influence. If God didn't trust that this was possible from us, if God didn't trust that we could get there, that we could pursue that in our life, then I would say he would have just left us out of his mission instead of making us pretty much a critical part of God's mission. You see what I mean by that? If God didn't trust us and think that we could do it, that we could trust him enough to be people who are trustworthy in our influence, then he would have just done it without us. He doesn't need us. But he chose to invite us to participate in his redemptive plan to bring the kingdom to this earth and to make all things new. And we get to be a part of that now and all the way until the full reality of the kingdom is here in this place. I was having a conversation with my friend the other day, and he was talking about how hard it is for him and some of his friendships and some of his actually working relationships to forgive people who have hurt him. And as I was talking to him, he said, you know, it's so difficult to forgive them because I don't trust that they're not going to hurt me again, but I know I need to forgive them, and I know that God will help me, he said. And I pointed out as we were talking that many of his friendships are with people who don't know God's grace and love. And so this friend is, of mine is embodying the grace and love of Jesus in those interactions. And for many of those people in his very high-powered workplace or in these other settings that he's in, that is the closest that they are getting to an experience of the deep compassion of God, their interactions with him. Do we realize this opportunity that we have before us? Because I, I, I think it can be daunting. But we're stepping every day, you are stepping every day into spaces where you get to represent the king. And you're stepping every day like priests who have access to God and who can help other people access God. That was the role of a priest at that time. We are a royal priesthood. So let me make a connection here for you. For us at Mill City and the way that we lead here as a church, we as pastors so deeply believe that you are people who have the opportunity to be intentional with your influence. We so deeply believe that you are leaders in your everyday spaces. Whether you have official titles that say that you are or not, we are like completely sold out and believe that that is true. And so that is actually at the core of how we've structured the leadership here at Mill City. Um, there is no kind of perfect way to structure church leadership. Believe me, we've tried to figure out what the perfect way is. There is no such thing, I don't think, in this current situation in the world. But we've tried to follow God, just like we're always encouraging you. What is God doing and how do we respond? And so we've tried to follow God in how we approach the role of formal leadership within our church. And this has resulted with, into something that many people have said is kind of an unusual leadership model. Um, And so uh, there's kind of two main distinctions, I think, that make this a little bit unusual. And so let me tell you what those two things are. The first is there is team leadership at every level in this community. Okay, so uh, missional communities are led by a team. Most of our ministry teams are led by a team of leaders. We have a leadership team made up of five members and the two of us as lead pastors on that team. And there's a total of five pastors that lead as a team. Both Michael and I serve as lead pastors, and we both sit on this leadership team. There's not a hierarchy between us on that team. So there's five people that are members and two of us pastors, and we see ourselves as together as seven people trying to discern what is God doing and how do we respond as we lead our church. And I was at a meeting with someone last month who's also a church leader, and I was telling him a little bit. He asked me, he said, well, tell me about the leadership structure at your church. Um, that's kind of talked about way too much by church leaders, but he was asking me the question. And so I told him, and I described it, and how we lead together instead of having a hierarchy or a chain of command, etc. And he said this. He said, that sounds like a disaster. How can you possibly lead like that? How do you get anything done? All right, so that's just verbatim what he said. He's not exactly a warm and fuzzy guy, Okay. And the thing is, is that, I mean, it could be a disaster. I I see where he's going. Things could take longer, et cetera. But for us, it forces us to trust God differently. It forces us to seek out the leadership of Jesus in a more intentional way because we have to listen together. It pushes us into further and more, I would say, better places in our leadership because of the mutual challenge that happens in these teams. And it usually doesn't mean that we're more efficient. It never means that we're more efficient. Team leadership takes more time, every single time. But I have come to believe that, at least for us, this way of leading is more effective. It's more effective when it comes to believing that God is actually the leader, that Jesus is the leader of the church, of our church, and we're trying to follow what Jesus is doing. And our hope is that having a team can help our community Trust the leadership because you know there's a group of people holding that responsibility, not just one person. So that's the first distinction, that there's team leadership at every level. The second out of two distinctions, I think, is that the purpose of leaders in our community is to equip other people not to decide things for them. The purpose of leaders in our community is to equip other people not to decide everything for other people. So what that looks like for us is that our hope is that we don't necessarily give everybody all the answers, but we help us together ask good questions and seek after what God might be doing in those questions. We have these five pastors here at Mill City who see everybody as having influence and everybody having the opportunity to listen and respond to God. We don't have more pastors so you have more people listening to God for you, but more people listening to God with you and coming alongside you as you listen to the God of the universe and respond to what God might be saying to you. And so our main role is not to do ministry for you, but to encourage and equip you as you do the ministry or the, the influence and be a leader in the ways that God is calling you into the spaces you're in every single day, because that's where you are an in influence every single day. We also see our role as leaders as coming alongside you when you have barriers to stepping into what God is calling you to do. Because there are barriers. I know what those are like in my life. Things get in the way of us responding to God. And so our role is to come alongside that. And our, our role is also to be there for some of the deepest moments of life, right? As pastors, one of our role is to come alongside some of those deep moments, sometimes the best moments of life and sometimes the worst moments of life. Not to dole out some sort of regimen of religious goods and services to the people who need them, but to come alongside these spiritually deep and rich moments in your life to make sure that space is created for you to encounter God during those moments. On Monday, I had the opportunity to officiate the funeral of Roland Brask's son, Eric. Eric died from cancer at only 40 years old. It was was tragic. However, Eric fought valiantly. It was an honor for me to get to know him as he was nearing the end of his life. And his teenage kids got up on the stage at the funeral and spoke about him. memories of him it was a a powerful time that's probably the best way I could describe it and I want to say that that time on Monday was more than just some sort of religious ceremony that was an encounter with the living God we can encounter the living God in our everyday spaces but then in these specific moments there's this encounter that you have as a group where God is leading people it's not just a, a religious ceremony it's not just ritual Moments like that are rich with purpose and meaning, and they remind us of God's purpose in our lives and God's leadership in our life. So whether as pastors we are leading those kind of big moments and trying to facilitate big moments like weddings and baptisms, funerals, dedications, things like that, or whether as leaders here in this church, many of us pastors included, um, coaching, training, uh, trying to teach any specific understanding of things, or whether we're just sitting with you and listening to your heart maybe the pain, maybe the celebration, maybe something in between. All of that is more than mere ritual. It's more than just what pastors are supposed to do. That's not what it's about. It is about our relentless belief that God has created you with influence in the kingdom of God. And if I didn't believe that, I would not get up and do my job every day. And that, that influence that you have cannot be duplicated by a pastor for you. Only you can do that. No amount of pastor school degrees that we collect on our staff can help you do that except for you. We can come alongside that, but you have to do that. You have to step into your identity as a royal priesthood. I have to step into my identity as somebody who's a part of the royal priesthood. And we see ourselves as leaders having the spiritual authority to point out what God might be doing in your everyday moments, as well as in the deepest moments of your life. And I'll tell you that that is a privilege and an honor to do that, to play that role, to listen to God with you. That gets me up every single day. There is no greater joy in my life than seeing one of you step courageously towards God's voice in your life. I get more excited about the things that God's doing in your life than in my own. I kid you not. You are a royal priesthood. We are a royal priesthood, we are living stones being built into a spiritual house. And if we let the builder guide us, as a solid cornerstone always guides the building's alignment, then we can do this. So as we close today, the band's gonna come back up. My hope for you, my hope for for us together is that we can trust ourselves. Can you trust yourself today? Not that you will be perfectly intentional, but trust that you can follow God. That you can trust a God who trusts you to participate in his kingdom. That you would believe in yourself, that you can listen and respond to God who is the true leader. You can do it, but you can't do it by yourself. You need other people to do it with you. We're going to do it together. We need community. But I, I believe that you have it in you. God believes that about you. God trusts that you can trust him. God trusts that you can trust him. God does not have the same trust issues that we do. And if we step intentionally into that influence, we're going to see that we take mercy with us into every space we go. We take Jesus' love into our everyday places. We take justice from God into the streets of our cities. This is who we are. We have what it takes. We have authority in the name of Jesus as daughters and sons of the king. I want to close today reading just those last couple of verses in the the message translation from Eugene Peterson's version of 1 Peter 2. This is what he says. You are the ones chosen by God. Chosen for the high calling of priestly work. Chosen to be a holy people. God's instruments to do his work and speak out for him. To tell others of the night and day difference he made for you. From nothing to something from rejected to accepted. Amen.